Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 2, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. So our topic for today's episode is going to funnel through the heart and mind of a special friend of ours named Carl Medeiros. Now, Carl, I've known Carl for uh, oh, five or six years now. Um, he is one of the most remarkable people I've ever met in my long life of adventure with Jesus. He's kind of an Indiana Jones kind of character. He's been a missionary to the Middle East for his entire adult life, but part of his story is that he was the least successful missionary in the history of the world, according to himself, (laughs) that he just made no inroads in the Muslim world for so many years because he was trying to bring Muslims to a place where they would leave behind Islam and accept Christianity. And Carl hit a wall in this effort until he tried an experiment. He started simply talking to Muslims about Jesus and and didn't talk to them about Christianity, just talked to them about Jesus. And he found that Muslims really love and honor Jesus and love to talk about him. And that sparked uh, a change of direction in Carl's life that in so many ways is kindred to my own. It's so radically different than my own, but so kindred to my own, where he more and more became fascinated, magnetized, and ruined for Jesus as he went down this path. Carl has since written many best-selling books, um, among them Muslims, Christians, and Jesus, and uh, another book called Speaking of Jesus, which actually here at Group we created a student version of Speaking of Jesus, which is more devotional in nature. It's actually a little bit of a misnomer. Anyone can read it. It's not just for students, but it's a devotional version of Carl's book, Speaking of Jesus, which is a brilliant book. He's also founder of the Simply Jesus Gathering, which I'm a participant in every year. I uh, speak a little bit and attend, and Becky, um, the Becky Nader, who's sitting here right next to me, hello, um, also uh, is a participant in the Simply Jesus Gathering, and we'll be there this July. Uh, We invite you to attend with us. It is a fantastic experience, Uh, a large crowd in the mountains, campfires, brisk air, mountain air, and all of it is about paying ridiculous attention to Jesus, and some of the most remarkable people you'll ever meet are also there. So we encourage you to join us this year. You can find out more at simplyjesusgathering.com. This is Carl's baby. He started it small, and it's become a thing. So Carl is also, as I kind of alluded to, uh, an international expert. He's consulted by uh, uh, world leaders um, and political leaders, uh, um, all about uh, Muslim-American relationships, and he's often consulted about strategic outreach to Muslims in the world, not just in the uh, kind of under the uh, Christian umbrella, but in general, how do we, how do we make good outreach to Muslims in the world? And as I mentioned, he's a passionate follower of Jesus. Again, if you're a new listener, my name is Rick. I'm author of the Jesus-Centered Life and editor of 
the Jesus-centered Bible. The Beckinator does a little bit of everything, all of it brilliantly. And together, we're, today we're going to explore some snippets from my interview with Carl that I did just last week. We will listen to a little snippet of this and, and then uh, respond to it. But the theme of today's podcast is inaugural speeches. <laughs> so this week, we're about to hear another inaugural speech from a new U.S. president. This is a marker historical moment where the, every new president sort of lays out their vision for what they intend to do over the next four years. And it's really their, their sort of living mission statement, their, their time to mark what they're really about. So in, in light of that, um, and through this conversation with Carl, we're going to revisit Jesus's inaugural address. Now, he had lived for 30 years, uh, most, most uh, believe, as a, as a tradesman, a person who worked in the field of carpentry, most likely following in his father's footsteps. And at the age of 30, he launched into his public ministry. And he did it in a very particular way, in kind of an epic way. He had his own inaugural address. So we're going to uh, slow down and pay ridiculous attention to Jesus' inaugural address through this conversation with Carl today. So let's get kicked off right now. Becky, do you have something to say before we actually kick off here? Because I've done all the talking so far. My name is Becky Hodges, not Becky Nader. Oh, some, some people, people are confused. Yeah, some people think that her last name is N-A-T-E-R. It's not. It's Hodges. It's not. But actually, her, the name that the Trinity has given her in it, the heavenly places is Be- Becky Nader. Because, you know, God names people according to their capabilities and their role in the world, and Becky's role in the world is definitely to be the Becky Nader. So, <laughs> so but yeah, it's not actually N-A-T-E-R is not her last name. It's, it's, it's a little bit interesting that you give your actual last name so all of these people can now call you at your home <laughs> in Old Town, Fort Collins. Like I have a home phone number, or like I don't you even... You don't have, have a home phone number? No. Oh, I guess that's, that's a dying breed. a millennial thing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it is. We do not have home yeah, phones. You'd prefer to use I'm a... I'm not in the white pages. You'd, you'd prefer to use a phone that really wasn't even created to be used no, as a phone. it's a computer yeah, that we also yeah. use as a telephone. Yeah, there you go. Well, so without further ado, let's jump into uh, the first segment of our interview with Carl. Uh, this first segment is about following Jesus. I realized, actually, in the most literal sense possible, I didn't know Jesus. I mean, I knew, I knew the Messiah, I knew the Savior, I knew my Lord, all wonderful titles, all, all real, and were personal to me. You know, so I'm not saying I wasn't saved, or I wasn't a believer, or not in the kingdom. It's just that Jesus himself, Jesus of Nazareth, the person, I didn't know, and maybe I didn't know him because of what I mentioned earlier, for a conservative uh, system that, that kind of poo-pooed the Gospels as the light. It was just a story. It was like the backstory of the good stuff. And the good stuff, basically, further right you go in the Bible, the better it gets. And, you know, Hebrews and Revelation are the, are the capstone. If you, can, if you can really digest Hebrews and Revelation, then you are, you're, you're mature, you're in. Uh, which is funny, because Jesus actually says the meat, the meat is doing the will of the Father. So he says, in response to his disciples, I have food, I have meat, the King James says, uh, to eat, that you know nothing about, and it is to do the will of the Father. The meat of the Word, Jesus being the Word, is not the book of Hebrews, or the book of Revelation. In fact, Hebrews says that 
the word is the milk. It's, pre-di- it's pre-digested. Somebody already digested those words, and then you've probably been taught those words of the Bible by somebody else who's a teacher. It's been double digested, and then you get them. So that's called milk. So the meat is actually following ing, following daily, today, right now, Jesus. That's the hard work of the kingdom. But I, I had it all upside down. So I just, I dove in, and I think I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and I, I kept throwing Acts in there. It feels to me like Acts is kind of the same, you know, of the same stuff. And Acts is a continuation of the story, and then it kind of flips after Acts into a bit of theology and doctrine, which is fantastic. It explains the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. So I, I love, by the way, doctrine and theology and the Pauline epistles and, and the Petrine epistles. You know, I, I love that stuff. I, I grew up in all that, and the Old Testament as well. I actually think I'm a big fan from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. I actually think it's all inspired. It's all the Word of God. But there's something special about, the, about, about looking at the way, and this is what I did. I read those four books probably a hundred times in those five years, maybe, maybe more. I actually didn't count, but I read them over and over, and I had a bunch of Bibles, and I would, I would underline and highlight uh, different themes in different Bibles. So one would be all the times Jesus had a conversation with anybody about anything. So I've documented every single time Jesus had a conversation, how long the conversation was, uh, the tenor and tone of the conversation. And I started to notice, notice things like, he was really hard on those closest to him, probably hardest on Peter, pretty hard on Peter, James, and John, fairly hard on the Twelve, and then he got nicer and nicer and nicer. The further away, I mean, the more you were a Samaritan or a woman or a child or a leper or a demoniac, the further away you were from Jesus and his kingdom, the nicer he was to you. Of course, I've been taught the opposite. I should be nice to people who think like me, and we were kind of, we're kind of tough on the outsiders. But... Lo and behold, Jesus is the opposite. And I kept finding that again and again, that Jesus was the opposite in how he dealt with people, how he talked to people from me. I did the exact opposite of what Jesus did. And I just decided whenever I find myself that I'm always doing the opposite of Jesus, I should stop doing that. That's not, I'm not following Jesus. I mean, he never answers questions. I always answer questions. You ask me a question, I give you an answer. We're doing it right now. Jesus never did that. He actually never answered anybody's question. So why is that? And so that that was the journey that set my heart and my head just on fire and has till now consumed me with this amazing person, Jesus of Nazareth, who was a Palestinian Jew who messed up all categories and who calls us to do the same. I, I just love it. I love him. Yeah, that's good. And w- one of the ways that we typically react to things like this, we are so hardwired to turn everything into a formula or a step-by-step process that we have assurance will lead to something. When actually, this, and Carl nailed this in what he just said, this is all about a relationship. And if you notice the nuance of how Carl described this transformation in his life, part of it was he started noticing the way Jesus interacted with other people, not for the purpose of extracting formulaic step-by-step patterns from that, but to understand the pattern of Jesus's heart. Because A, it's impossible to establish a formulaic pattern for the way Jesus interacted with people. He was all over the board. Um, 
Carl pointed out, the number of surprising ways that Jesus interacted with people that conflict with our own natural ways of interacting with him. So I think this is an important thing to make note of as we pursue Jesus, as we pay ridiculous attention to him. What Carl did was brilliant. Uh, It's funny, uh, I have such a kindred relationship with him because he ended up through completely different starting point doing some of the same things I did on my path to being ruined for Jesus. He just started getting curious, in this instance, about how did Jesus interact with people? So he started documenting some of these patterns of how he behaved with people, and he st- what started to happen is Jesus' heart started to unlock for him. And that process is exactly the same as the one I went through. When I started paying better attention to Jesus, I started noticing things that shocked me about the way that he interacted with people. Like you can notice, for instance, I wrote a whole book called Skin in the Game that came out of a process like this, and it was simply the observation that every time somebody wanted something from Jesus, he asked them to put some of their skin in the game first before he would do something for them. It was so consistent, but it was right there in front of me all of these years that I just never noticed it because it happened in such diverse circumstances I didn't realize he was always doing something with people when they wanted something from him. And then you have to ask, well, why is Jesus asking people to put some of their skin in the game before he responds to their request for a need? Why is he always doing that? What is he after? When you start asking questions like that, you're starting to get at the core of who Jesus really is. You're not extracting the formula, you're extracting his heart when you ask questions like that, and that's exactly what Carl is doing. Okay, Becky, that's my say. How did you first react to what Carl said here? Well, one of my first thoughts was, who are my enemies that I need to love? And so, you know, of course I think enemies are terrorists, people who are, you know, there's a lot of terrorism happening around the world. But actually, this is what Jesus put in my heart immediately. It was the college kid that keeps parking in front of my driveway, and I have to, like, go pound on his door and, like, am late to work. And I've been, I have not been loving these kids, and I actually felt a lot of conviction about that. And I think sometimes when we think about enemies, we think about things that are far away. Maybe they're a candidate that you don't like. They're... But there's people in your life, maybe there's a coworker that you're having a really hard time working with or who's making your job difficult and you need to love them. That's the person that you need to love. Um, so I, I think that loving, focusing on loving our enemies is something that if that's what Jesus's heart is after, I want my heart to be after that too. So thanks, Becky. Uh, you, you know, uh, one of the things I've really wrestled with um, in this journey uh, toward paying ridiculous attention to Jesus is even that phrase, the, the phrase that is the title of our podcast, doesn't sound very pragmatic. And I've wrestled over, as I've gotten more and more intimate with Jesus, and my life with Him has become closer uh, and closer to Him, I wrestle with the Church's message about pragmatism. In fact, I find that the, the Church often elevates relevance and pragmatism above the pursuit of Jesus's heart, and I have often feel like a fish out of water. And you're about to hear me prattle on about that a little bit with Carl, and Carl's going to interrupt me and give me a little course correction, so let's listen. 
my experience of the church's focus today is really that it's it's on relevance and pragmatism, uh, primarily. Uh, everything is oriented toward making sure whatever message is spoken is relevant and pragmatic and uh, helpful and making your life work better. And I'm wondering, my switch, my movement in this direction is anything but relevant and pragmatic sometimes. It just doesn't seem like it fits with the spirit of the movement of the church today. And sometimes, uh, you know, when I go on and on about Jesus, I get kind of a wink-wink from other yeah. Christian leaders, right. like, yeah, 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 now let's get to the stuff that really matters. They wouldn't right. say that, but I know that's what they're thinking. So, well, I, you know, I, go I, ahead. Can, can I just can I say something here? Because I, I know you're leading up to a really thought-provoking question, which <laughs> will make me forget what I want to say right now. So let me interrupt you. Go, go that, for it. That, that I think... I would say what you're saying is absolutely true. However, what the, the funny thing is, is I think Jesus is the ultimate pragmatist. I think he is completely relevant. He, he is completely contextual. He is completely concerned with uh, a suburban church in America and how that church that opens its doors at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning does, does worship and does preaching and does life and does outreach and community and missions and everything that they do, small groups. And well, he's completely into that. It's just that we don't think he is, and we've misunderstood the relevance and pragmatism of Jesus. So, for instance, I mean, crazy things that Jesus says, like, do not judge. I mean, do not judge, maybe, or do not worry, you know, both in the Sermon on the Mount. Those are things that nobody actually ever does, right? We don't ever not judge, and we don't ever not worry. And we don't, and we don't, and we don't, we don't ever love our enemies. And we don't ever love our enemies, and I can think of, you know, we could come up with, you know, a hundred things that that us not to say we, let's say me, I, Carl, don't do those things. I teach about them, and I, I'm a hypocrite. I actually don't do them. I do judge people. I do, I do worry. Uh, I do not always love my enemies. I don't even love my neighbors. So, so I'm not doing very well, you know. But the thing is, if we did do those things, the things that, why do you, why does Jesus say don't judge or don't worry? He's not trying to be mean to us. He wants to set us free. I mean, think of the free life we would live if we never worried and never judged, and by the way, number one command of the Bible, do not fear, and we were never afraid. We were never afraid, we never worried, and we never judged any person's actions or intentions ever. Think about, I mean, just actually let that sink in a little bit, and you just kind of go, oh, wow, can you imagine a life without worry or fear hmm. or judgment? Yeah. It, be, I mean, it would be the most wonderful free life, so it is the ultimate pragmatism to make you happy and wildly joyful in that complete and total peace, we just don't believe that Jesus was being serious. Okay, so this, in this little segment of our, uh, our interview with Carl, this is where Jesus' inaugural speech comes up. Because Carl says in the midst of this that, wh- why is Jesus telling us not to do th- some things and to do some other things? And wh- is he trying to control us, lord it over us? No, Carl says... He's trying to set us free, which is at the heart of Jesus' inaugural address. It happens in Luke 4, when he's about to begin his ministry. He comes to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, and it says here, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. But this day was different. This day was uh, an epic day. He, he asks for the scroll of Isaiah the prophet, and he unrolls the scroll, 
and he finds the place where it's written, and here's where it's written. This is Jesus setting forth the vision for his three-year ministry, setting forth the vision for why he's come, what he's going to do, and what Lord lordship means um, on, on earth. He says, he quoting Isaiah, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released." that the blind will see, and that the oppressed will be set free. So Jesus here is quoting a, a classic uh, portion of Scripture from Isaiah that points, and everybody in the crowd knows that it points, exactly to the Messiah. And Jesus is saying at the get-go, I am the Messiah. And the Messiah's job description is to set captives free. His intention at every moment in my life and in your life is to set you free. There is no thing that he does in connection with his relationship with you that is not intended to set you free. Never. He is constantly moving toward greater and greater freedom of captiv- from captivity in each of our lives. So this is what he's about. So if you think about Jesus through the filter of this, that you whatever he says and whatever he does that you read, and whatever you experience him doing in his life— All of it is oriented toward his inaugural address, which is, I've come to set captives free. It will unlock some of his surprising behavior, both in Scripture and in your life. And what a shift that is, because now when you hear these commands that he's asking you to do, like don't worry and don't fear and don't judge and love your enemy, these aren't, these aren't tasks or to-do lists. These aren't things that he's commanding because he, he wants you to work harder. It's because he wants to free you from all of your worry and from your fear. And he wants you to know that he is in control of what's happening and that you can rest and rely on him. And that is just, that, that is what being free is. And this filter, this way of thinking about his inaugural address, tra- transforms our understanding of the things he says about this life he's inviting us into. Like, for instance, the Beatitudes, uh, the most famous uh, sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, where he speaks forth who is blessed and why. Now, if you think about these blessings in terms of what it looks like to be a set-free captive— That's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say, when you are set free, the blessing of that will be that if you are poor and you realize your need for him, you've been set free. He says, God blesses those who mourn for they'll be comforted. So when you're mourning, you can be set free from the captivity of your grief by the knowledge that you'll be comforted by him in the midst of that. There's freedom in that. He says, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. He's saying that humble, not the powerful and the rich, are going to inherit the earth. What freedom from the captivity of the rat race of trying to get more stuff and earn more things. He's describing one after the other what it looks like and feels like to be free in the kingdom of God. And this is his intention, not to steal our fun, (laughs) but to actually invite us into a party. A, a, a party where we experience ourselves and him in freedom. All right, let's move to the next segment of our interview with Carl. And here we're going to talk about um, one of the great uh, one of the great bogies of the Christian life. 
Um, though we know we're not supposed to be afraid or anxious, um, we're often anxious and afraid. <laughs> in fact, most of us, if we stop for a minute, could get in touch with our at least one anxiety and one fear we're having right now in this very moment. So um, Carl talks a little bit about fear and its role in our life and how a relation, our deepening relationship with Jesus addresses those fears. So let's listen. Well, it's funny, isn't it? Because it seems to me that sometimes people who call themselves Christians, kind of good church-going Christians, are the most, the most unfree people in the world. Mm-hmm. They have, they have all the worries and fears and fears that the rest of the world has, like your house might burn down or you might get run over by a bus or whatever. You know, just kind of regular fears that people have, and then you know, afraid of the dark, afraid of public speaking, afraid of podcasts with Rick Lawrence. I mean, just the normal fears of life. And then you have the extra fears that are Christian fears, like. What if I didn't do that right? Well, I, I talked to my neighbor about Jesus, but what if he's offended? Or I'd invite them over to have a meal with me, but what they don't like our food? Or what if I get married to the wrong person? Or what if I have bad theology? Or what if he's a heretic? Or what if there's the wrong church? You know, we have these Christian fears, so we actually end up being the, the ones who are supposed to be most, most free. I think Christians often end up being the ones who are most not free. And it's, again because we haven't really believed in what Jesus said, and we don't fully know who he is. And neither do I. If I sound at all like I'm preaching at somebody listening to this, man, I'm not. I'm actually not. I'm actually, generally speaking, not very good at this stuff. But as I get better at believing Jesus, which is the work of God, he says, is to believe in the one he has sent, to just believe that Jesus is who he said, I do feel more and more free. And man, freedom is wonderful. It's awesome. So one thing that sticks out in what Carl just said, that uh, um, it was a reminder, but it's also a profound stop-you-in-your-tracks moment for me. He said the work of God is to believe in Him, and this is something that Jesus repeated over and over again, and also celebrated and praised when people simply believed. How can, you know, we're always, as Americans, Christians, we're looking around for ways we can work at this, and Jesus lays it out there for us. He says, oh, if if you want to work at something— Work at believing in me. Let's take it to that basic level. Well, what does that mean to believe in him? I think Carl's really getting at the core of this when we when we say, how can you believe in something that you don't know or understand? How can you believe in something that you haven't experienced? He's, he's inviting us to experience and taste and see that he is good, to, to understand his heart experientially, not just on words on a page that we actually sense his heart at work in our lives. We sense him setting us free from some of our captivities. And, and Carl's really uh, smoking out of the bushes um, these chief anxieties and worries and fears, and he's owning them for himself just as we do. You know, when we can resonate when we hear Carl say, I am this way. <laughs> Even though I'm getting closer to Jesus, I experience these captivities but as I get closer to him, I start to feel a little relaxing of the anxiety, a little relaxing of the fear. I'm starting to learn to let go of them, these things, as I get closer to him. I also think, what would it look like if Christians were known for being free? You know, how attractive would it be to say, wow, you know what's different about them is that they are not worried or fearful about anything. And they're just, they're free. And I I just, I'm so attracted to that. I'm so attracted to something that could, could relieve my anxiety because it's so burdensome. 
And I really, I, you know, I really resonate with that idea of how do I look to other people? I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm always anxious and fearful and judgmental and, and I'm not loving people the way that I should. And how do I, how does that look like a free life? How does that look enticing? And I think Carl captures the irony of this, that, that there are general fears and then there are Christian fears. And the Christian fears come, come hand in hand with our desire to perform and to do it right, to not make any mistakes. And I think he nailed that exactly right. The idea that that there that we're on the line because we don't want to make a mistake in this. We don't want to make a mistake in how we pray or how we follow his will or any of these things. We don't want to judge people. We don't want to make a mistake with that. So we end up performance-oriented because we we feel like a load of expectation has been loaded onto us. But one of my great loves in life is jazz music, and I think I've mentioned before, my love for jazz coincided, uh, ironically, with my deepening intimacy with Jesus. They happened at the same time, and I think the reason why is there's an element of improvisational jazz that reminds me of an active relationship with Jesus, because in improvisational jazz, you're not following notes on a page, you're listening to one another, and you're responding to what each other is doing, and if somebody in your jazz quartet makes a mistake or takes a note in a way that you didn't intend or didn't like, instead of treating it like a mistake, you embrace it and find a new direction to go. You find beauty out of the ugly, and for me, I think jazz became a metaphor for my growing intimacy with Jesus as I experienced myself not meeting the standard or screwing up or making mistakes in my life, I experienced him taking those discordant notes in my life and making something beautiful about about them or turning them into something beautiful. And we're going to do a whole podcast on how Jesus related with people, and we're going to expose this uh, tendency we have, especially if you've grown up in the church, to fixate on what God's good or perfect will is, and we imagine that it's written down somewhere and we need to follow it exactly or bad things are going to happen. But what if really what Jesus is living out and exemplifying is more of a jazz relationship with us? I know that sounds cheesy when I say it, but what if he's living more of a jazz quartet relationship with us, where we put something on the table and he does something with it? He plays a note back and we respond with another note, and out of that comes beautiful music. Out of that becomes his will and direction. We're going to explore that in a future podcast, but I think Carl starts to get it. the reason why we are so demanding of notes on a page, when what Jesus really wants is an in-the-moment experiential relationship with us that produces great music. Well, thanks for listening. Um, Also remember that you can find out more information about everything that we talked about today in further detail on thejesuscenteredlife.com. Find the podcast section um, and click on Season 2, Episode 2. Also, if you're listening in an app like iTunes or Google Play, it's in the description. Just click on the link to see more, and you'll, you'll find all of the links. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcast, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.